Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care and Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Wednesday, April 19th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be discussing an article from the April edition of Critical Care Medicine, entitled Rationing in the Intensive Care Unit. The reference is Critical Care Medicine, Volume 34, Number 4, pages 958 to 963. Joining us today are two of the authors of this article, Robert Trug, M.D., and Mitchell Levy, M.D., F.C.C.M. Dr. Trug is Professor of Medical Ethics and Anesthesia, Pediatrics, at Harvard Medical School, Children's Hospital, Boston. Uh, and Dr. Levy should be joining us later on during the interview. Uh, and I just wanted to uh, point out to you, Dr. Trug, uh, as I mentioned before, that when I was discussing this article with my colleagues uh, before the uh, we came on the air here, uh, everybody's reaction was actually rather similar when I said I was going to do a podcast on rationing. They said, rationing what? So there's clearly, I thought, lots of room for education here. Yes, I agree. Um, in terms of the uh, the flow of the interview today, I thought we'd have you start out by talking a little bit about this organization, uh, VERIC, V-E-R-I-C-C, the history of it, and perhaps the mission of the organization. The uh, VERIC task force uh, was a group of individuals that were convened uh, under Dr. Levy. Um, VERIC stands for the Task Force on Values, Ethics, and Rationing in Critical Care, and it was funded by an unrestricted grant from Eli Lilly. And the group met for a couple of years and have engaged in several projects, one of which was a paper to talk about uh, rationing in the ICU, which is the article, of course, that was just published. The group did other projects as well that looked at how resources might be more efficiently used in intensive care, um, and from what I understood, looking over this particular paper, this was an independent organization. Uh, it was funded, uh, but the idea was for it to come up with some sort of structured approach to rationing of healthcare, specifically in the intensive care unit. That's right. It was new in a couple of ways. First of all, rationing has been written about in the abstract for decades, and uh, some famous case studies have been done in other settings, but never really focused on the ICU. Even more importantly, though, I think, is that um, when people talk about rationing, they often talk about it at the level of public policy and decisions made at a very high level about how health care dollars should be spent. Um, what we wanted to do was to look at the issue through the eyes, if you will, of an intensivist standing in the, in the ICU, uh, grappling with the decisions that we have to face every day. 
And again, this is a very different uh, uh, way of looking at the problem uh, from a level that is not commonly taken. In your manuscript, you have three basic categories of of rationing, external constraints, clinical guidelines, and clinical judgment. And I'd like to spend uh, the preponderance of our time together uh, letting you go over some of those uh, categories, how you came up with them, and examples of that as you do so eloquently in your paper. But before that, I actually wanted to read, if I could, a couple of what I thought were very good quotes. Uh, This is on page uh, 959. Some insist that rationing at the bedside can never be ethical. In other words, they argue that even if critical care services must be limited to preserve resources for other societal purposes, intensivists should never be placed in the role of rationing these services, but rather should be strong advocates for all of their patients' needs, regardless of scarcity or expense. And then there, there's a couple other sentences, but, but you state here that although agreeing that many types of rationing should be done through public policy and regulatory structures, we believe that no bright line can be drawn that will protect the bedside clinician from the need to make rationing decisions. Right. I think actually uh, if that was the whole paper uh, right there, I think we would have achieved our major purpose <laughs> um, because... My experience, and I think uh, your experience, as you've described it, is is that if you if you ask uh, somebody in the ICU whether they ration care, um, most often they'll just give you a puzzled look, like they don't even know what you're talking about. I think most physicians believe that they do everything that they can for their patients, and patients, conversely, I think have that same expectation of physicians. And so the idea of rationing at the bedside has... You know, it's almost it's almost like a dirty word. It's it's something that is that is brought up only as an example of something that we never do. But the fact of the matter is that taken to the extreme, the only way that we could really avoid rationing would be if each of us only took care of one patient at a time, and we had unlimited resources uh, to work with. That's clearly not the case. All of us who work in ICUs are aware of allocating our nurses between patients. Some of them will have one nurse, others will have two. Sometimes we, uh, a nurse will be taking care of three patients. Um, many times we know that that's not optimal. We wish we had more resources, but we don't. And so we make, we make decisions about who is most in need of what we have to offer. Rarely do people call that a rationing decision, but in fact it is, and it's an appropriate kind of rationing decision. So the idea of the taxonomy that we developed was to give physicians a framework for thinking about the different kinds of decisions that they face every day and how those decisions are influenced by external factors as well as their own judgments. So uh, just, I guess, to start uh, getting into a little bit of the meat, because I think that there's a lot to talk about here, is, so for example, on page uh, 960, your table one lists these three categories and gives the types of decisions and some reasons given to support the decision, and starting with external constraints. And that, to me, was a, was somewhat interesting because you said, you know, not being able to order a particular test or give a particular drug because your hospital doesn't either have that test or have that particular drug. And I guess if you wanted to talk a little bit about how your group came up with that particular uh, category. Sure. So um, that that is rationing where the reasons that you're rationing relate to external constraints. So let's take a formulary drug as an example. 
One of the ways that hospitals control costs is by controlling what medications they're included, they include on the formulary, particularly if there's two medications that are close to being equally effective, similar side effect profiles, they'll often include only a less expensive drug. Or if there's a new drug that's out uh, where they feel the, the uh, formulary committee feels that the evidence in favor of its efficacy is not yet strong enough, they won't include that on the formulary. Now, physicians in, in typical practice will have to conform to the restrictions of the formulary. You know, you, you might say, in an ideal world, I would give this medication, but it's not on the formulary. This is, a, this is a form of rationing, but it's largely out of the control of the physician at the bedside. These decisions have been made at a higher level, and that's why we call them external constraints. But that can also be, a, a, both personally and I would imagine at a national level, a, a great source of uh, frustration for people you know, who want to be good intensivists, where you spend all your time trying to be cutting edge, learning about the best way to treat critically ill patients, and yet your, your hands can often be tied um, because one institution may feel that they can afford to have this and another one can't. I think that's, that's exactly right, and I think uh, that brings up two points. First is that you know, for those who say that rationing isn't happening, it is. This is an example of it. But secondly, just because there are those external constraints doesn't mean necessarily that the decision of the physician is the correct one. For example, maybe you've had this situation arise, I certainly have, where I felt that a drug was absolutely essential for somebody. And in that situation, you have an obligation to go and appeal this decision by your hospital. You know, you go to the the head of the, of the committee and you say, in this particular case, we need to get this medication from an outside source. And in my experience, um, on occasion, I've been able to do that. Now, if all of us did that all the time, then this would not work as a uh, way for hospitals to control their costs. On the other hand, if none of us ever did that, then I think there would be certain times where patients really would be put at risk by not having a medication that is, in fact, available. You know, the physician just needs to g- jump through some hoops in order to make it happen. I'm s- I was going to say, that seems like it's segueing a little bit into clinical judgment, right, where you're taking an external constraint and saying, well, I'm more than just a technician, I'm a physician, and I think this is above and beyond the standard example where we shouldn't be giving it. That's right, and that's where these, these categories, of course, don't have any black and white borders between them. It, it absolutely does need clinical judgment, and yet what makes the, the category different is that uh, typically the constraints are pretty high. Uh, you know, if you're going to go around the formulary committee, you, you probably have to plan on, on spending several hours at least doing it. Or like you gave an example in your... In your uh in your table about the, the intensive care unit that you work in or the institution has only a certain number of continuous uh, hemofiltration devices and uh, either discussing getting one from another hospital or going to your critical care committee and saying that we may not have enough. Exactly. That's, a, that's another perfect example of that. Uh, it is possible to get around those constraints, but it requires considerable effort. One of the, uh, the the next major one was clinical guidelines, and again, I, I like that a lot because it's come up very frequently in the podcast because having a structured approach to ventilation and sedation uh, allows there to be a degree of uniformity when there's some evidence base behind it, which seems to be associated with good outcomes. Um, but it was very interesting, I thought, in your paper, and if you could discuss this, this would be great, that 
those clinical guidelines may be evidence-based, but that there's a component missing from an economic standpoint, and you're saying there may be fundamental inherent limitations on these, uh, even if they do include uh, cost-effectiveness analyses? I think, um, so the uh, category that relates to clinical guidelines has a couple of caveats to it. First, clinical guidelines differ as to whether they include cost in the analysis or not. And, and I think this creates a big problem for us who are working at the bedside in that some clinical guidelines specifically don't look at cost and just look at which is the, the better approach. Others employ cost-effectiveness analysis uh, as part of the methodology. If you don't know which is which, you're comparing apples to oranges. So that's a first consideration. The second is that any clinical guideline is really a statement about a population of patients. And depending on how the studies were done, uh, what studies were included in the guideline, they may or may not apply to your particular patient. And you may have very good reasons for saying that your patient should not be treated by the guideline. As we increasingly live in a world where our practice is held up to guidelines as a standard, and where we are liable to have people tell us, you know, gee, you're not doing very good medicine because you're not following the guidelines. I think we need to be aware of the role of clinical judgment, the, the truly valid and important role of clinical judgment, in occasionally not following these guidelines. And, uh, and I think that this is, to the extent that guidelines are being used as a way to ration care, uh, this is another one of the factors that impacts upon doctors at the bedside. And so, again, as the example in your, in your uh, table, you stated about obtaining a CAT scan before obtaining an MRI. And this obviously, uh, I remember I used to do general internal medicine, this comes up there as well, where you're forced to do a test you don't think is maybe the most appropriate one in order to get to the one you want to do. Yes, and I, I think that's a good example um, in the sense that very often we know that the MRI is the best study, but, you know, it's reasonable to say that a CT scan would be a good first step, and both in terms of the availability of the test as well as its cost, I think it's reasonable for hospitals to tell us, you know, do the CT first and then see if you really need the MRI. In a perfect world, we would just go straight to the MRI. So I think that this is another example of where rationing is occurring. And I just wanted to read another quote, if I could, that was in the section under rationing and clinical guidelines, which I thought was very interesting and, and well done. Physicians are commonly willing to recommend treatments that have limited evidence of benefit if they are inexpensive and safe, yet cautious in recommending interventions that are expensive or risky when evidence of benefit is modest or ambiguous. And, you know, almost every intensivist has run this sort of mental formula through their head at the bedside, and it's a tough thing to do. Again, I think that this is uh, a point I would make to somebody who says that they never ration. In fact, I think you're, you're right that this is kind of a, a little mental calculation that we go through all the time. You know, if uh, to take sort of extreme examples, not necessarily related to intensive care, but if a patient says, you know, I'm really interested in taking vitamin C for my metastatic cancer, and we don't believe that there's really any evidence in favor of that, we're quite likely to say, sure, you know, if, if you think that might be helpful, go ahead. Vitamin C is extremely inexpensive. Uh, it's unlikely to have any serious side effects. Uh, why not? You know, on the other hand, when the person with metastatic cancer says, I'd like to have a bone marrow transplant, well, now that, that, gets, <laughs> that, that decision right. gets subject to a much higher degree of scrutiny, as I think it, indeed it should, both in terms of the cost as well as the potential risk to the patient. 
So I think that those are the kinds of things that we're doing all day long, uh, many of which really are best described as rationing decisions. One other question I had for you just to share with the listeners is, can you paint a little bit of a picture about how you came up with these three different categories? Was there a lot of debate? Did everybody sit around in a room? Uh, Were there other categories that almost made it? The categories really came out of day-long discussions that the Varick Task Force had that were often very frustrating because we wanted to say something about rationing that would resonate with intensive care clinicians. Yet most of what we were reading were very abstract ideas and principles that were extremely difficult to apply. And in fact, we almost gave up on the project over this. And really, was on really? the way home from one of those meetings that uh, in the plane, um, you know, I thought... Uh, may, maybe something like this, some categorization like this would be helpful. And so that's where I started to, to take some notes and to put some of these ideas down. And then in subsequent meetings, this seemed to resonate with the group as a whole. And, uh, and that's how the paper took shape. Wow. So it was, um, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that easily lends itself to any kind of a, a randomized trial, right? I mean, as you said, I mean, I remember this reading over your papers that it's just, it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable because it's not something that we say is rationing. We say, this is our job. I ha- I am in charge of, it's my tough job. I'm in charge of figuring out who goes into the ICU beds, who comes out of the ICU beds. And it's my job with the limited resources of being a critical care doctor, how I do this. And I remember you said in your paper that there was a study that showed that clinician, that uh, intensivists were much more likely than surgeons to even bring this into the equation when managing a patient. Yeah, and I think uh, part of that relates to our role as intensivists in managing uh, entire units. So we have multiple patients under our care that we're trying to make decisions for, and so it's a little easier to see how we balance the needs of one against those of another, whereas surgeons tend to take care of patients in a more linear and sequential fashion. But I think the reluctance to call this rationing runs very deep, and you'll see people who will say, I don't ration, but I never, I, I provide patients with all the care that is appropriate, and I don't provide inappropriate care. And you can kind of see how the, way, how the way they use appropriate and inappropriate is a way of making many of the rationing decisions without using the word. Or to say, you know, I only do things that are medically indicated. Again, this is another word that we use, which, which contains many of the, of the features of rationing, but allows us to avoid using the word. I think rationing is a good word in that it really brings this um, up front and center so that we truly recognize what's going on. And then um, if I could, just so we mention it, because I, I, I would imagine you would say it's perhaps the most important, was rationing and clinical judgment. And just to read here, the third category of reasons that could be used to support a rationing decision is clinical judgment. Stated most generally, clinical judgment is required for rationing decisions in at least two circumstances, when it is unclear how guidelines should be applied and when guidelines do not exist. And then you point out that it's not just simply disagreeing with clinical, clinical guidelines for idiosyncratic reasons, but rather if you genuinely feel that a certain part of a set of clinical guidelines doesn't apply to you. Yes, I think that this is the most problematic area because I think that in rationing by clinical judgment, we have both conscious as well as unconscious factors that are operating. To take, to take an example that probably most people wouldn't think of as rationing, uh, imagine as, as I've had to, uh, on many occasions, 
middle of the night, you have uh, maybe one resident on call with you, and somebody needs to go down to the CT scanner. And you're faced with the decision of, do you send the resident physician down with the patient to the CT scanner to keep a close eye on things, realizing that if you do that, you're going to be left relatively shorthanded for all of the other patients in the ICU. Um, this is a rationing decision. This is making, you know, balancing the needs of one patient against those of another. Now, there's no guidelines out there about how to do this, and yet it's a really important decision, and it's the, the kind of a decision that we make by clinical judgment all the time. That's relatively conscious. But what about the unconscious decisions that operate, um, where we make perhaps subtle value judgments based up upon well, you had you had a couple of you had three examples at the end here that I thought were the only word is startling. You, you reemphasized the age bias issue, right? Which is one, right? Um, and that's been coming up in my other podcast because there, that that is just genuinely complex. Because a these people are at high risk for death. It keeps coming out as an independent marker of death, and yet there's other studies showing they respond well to therapy. So it's tricky. And then the other ones, and this is a beautiful paragraph. I love this. These biases can influence rationing even at the most personal level, such as when physicians direct resources disproportionately towards patients and families whom they know or like particularly well, or who are more demanding about receiving the interventions they desire. Acknowledging that these are rationing decisions and revealing the reasons behind the decisions is a necessary first step towards eliminating those decisions that derive from unrecognized prejudice or bias. Yes, and I, I think that, uh, again, this is something that we find very hard to admit even to ourselves that these factors are going on, and yet um, by labeling them and calling them what they are, it brings the practices to light so that we can see them more clearly and, and talk about them and, 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 and work at making uh, the care we provide more equitable and fair. If you wanted to take the last few minutes and sort of share, uh, again, when you were mentioning the challenges of the, the project almost breaking down because you couldn't come up with the categories, what are some of the slated potential future projects, or how would you continue to attack this, uh, this project head-on? I think, actually, one of the most difficult implications of what we wrote about appears in the section about disclosing rationing decisions. And this is the one, this is the aspect that makes me the most uncomfortable. Because if we believe that we don't ration, if we believe that we provide all treatments that are, quote, medically indicated or, quote, medically appropriate, then when we don't provide something, we believe that it's simply a medical decision and that it's being made for purely medical reasons. When we recognize, though, that these are rationing decisions, as I believe many, many of them are, then the question arises as to whether this information, whether this decision needs to be shared with the patient and family. Truly, I think that, that many of them should be, but I'm not comfortable doing it, and I don't think very many of us are. You know, uh, when, uh, when you tell somebody that uh, you're not going to use a drug that you might otherwise use because it's not on the formulary, uh, right now, most of us, I think, we just regard that as a fact of life. If it's seen as a rationing decision, though, then one might feel obligated to actually tell the family. And that opens up the possibility that the family may say, well, hey, if it's not available through the hospital, we'll go down the street to the local pharmacy and we'll pay for it in cash. 
And I think none of us want to face these kinds of, of situations in the ICU. It was interesting as we went through the review process with this paper, some of the reviewers who were not physicians really pounded on this point. Um, saying, you know, if this is the way that medicine is done, first of all, this was news to us. We didn't know that this was going on. This is very interesting. And secondly, as patients and families, uh, we want to know about it because uh, there might be things that we can do, ways that we can appeal the decision or whatever. Just to get practical, it it's a, becomes a, a, a medical legal issue, right? I mean... Well, it does become a medical legal issue. That's right. And I think for the most part we're handling it right now as a purely medical issue. Um, believe me, I, I would be the last to say that, that this is going to be easy, and, and, and I'm as uncomfortable as anybody else about it. I think that we're taking the first steps towards maybe a more, a more honest way of dealing with our patients and families. I started out and had the word uncomfortable three times in my, in my little uh, guide here, and I, I remain even more uncomfortable than before I started this discussion right. with you. Um, but I am really grateful that you've taken the time to speak with us today and, and to put this together. And I guess your, your, the final point is that dealing with this head-on will have to be of, of value rather than ignoring the issue completely, which is sort of one of the major points, I would imagine. Over and over again, we see that holding things up to the light of discussion and debate in the long run is the better way to go, even if it makes us intensely uncomfortable in the short term. Well, we'll have to uh, catch up with Dr. Levy later. We've been speaking today on the podcast with Dr. Robert Trug. He is a professor of medical ethics and anesthesia at Harvard Medical School, and we've been speaking today about rationing in the intensive care unit. Thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Great. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, April 19th, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org or www.ccmjournal.com. Please call 1-847-493-6498 to offer feedback or ask questions about the iCritical Care podcast. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM Customer Service Representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.